Hi, this is Bob Hutchins. And before we begin this episode, I wanted to just say thank you to all the listeners that have messaged me and emailed me and texted me and told me that they're getting a lot out of this podcast and the conversations that I'm having with the special people that I've been talking to. I know I've been benefiting from it, and I would like to ask you a favor, if you would, if you are listening to this and you do have the ability to leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate if you do that. Uh, What that does is it uh, lets me know who's out there, but it does another important thing, and that's lets iTunes know that there are people listening and they like it. And when that happens, they begin to introduce the podcast through their different algorithms and methods to more people so that the best podcast will uh, bubble to the top. So uh, the more that you like it and write a review specifically, then it allows more people to also listen to Rumors of Grace. So if you could do that for me, I would greatly appreciate it. And thank you so much for your kind comments and input and enjoy the podcast today. Rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to Rumors of Grace. My name is Bob Hutchins and In the studio today, I have a very special friend. Jeff Goins is with me from right here in Franklin, Tennessee. Jeff, welcome. Hey, Bob. Good to be here. Thanks. Uh, Jeff is a writer. He's a keynote speaker, award-winning blogger, and he's got a reputation for challenging the status quo, and we're going to talk about that today. He's also a best-selling author of five books, including The Art of Work, which landed on the bestsellers list of USA Today. Publishers Weekly, and The Washington Post. He's also the founder of Tribe Writers and the Tribe Conference, which was just this past weekend, right? Yeah. The, the last one. The last one. Thanks so much for being here, Jeff, and I appreciate your friendship, and um, I know that you're probably recovering to, what, a couple of days after the, the big big event yeah. that you guys do every year? Yeah, I had tacos. You got me tacos for lunch, so I feel <laughs> fully... Rehabilitated. Thank you, Oscars. <laughs> free advertisement. I know. So before we get into all that fun stuff, uh, who is Jeff Goins? Let's go back to the beginning. Where, are you from Tennessee? or I'm from Chicago. Okay. Uh, I grew up just outside of Chicago in the suburbs. My parents are originally from that area as well. And I am the boy who always liked to make things. When I was really young, I got into art, drawing. I used to draw Garfield comics. My dad was a musician. He has this really cool tattoo of a wizard on his arm. And he has all these crazy stories about like meeting Bob Dylan at a random party in Alabama. Oh, yeah. And and jamming with Neil Young's guitarist and all this stuff. So was he a musician? Yeah, he was super cool. And I was the opposite of super cool. (laughs) But he taught me how to play guitar. And, um, And so my love for art kind of... Uh, transitioned into a love for poetry and then music. And I went from writing sad poems about girls that wouldn't date me to writing sad songs about girls that wouldn't date me. And uh, I was just always making things and always sharing those things that I made with people, whether that was my parents or I got into theater in high school and college uh, and then later got into like debate and public speaking. Do you have siblings growing up? Uh, I have, I'm the oldest of four. Okay. I grew up with two younger sisters that I'm seven and 10 years older than. And then my brother came 
19 years after I was born. He was wow. uh, all the same parents, um, but he came when I was in college. Wow. So how old is your youngest brother right now? He is almost 17, yeah. Wow. <laughs> what is that even like? <laughs> I mean, it's it, uh, he has he and I had different childhoods, obviously, right? Yeah. And so they, it's like you're an uncle almost to him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it is it is what it is. It's it's what we know. He it's interesting because I grew up kind of solo for the first mm-hmm. seven years. So I was an only child. Then it was me and the two sisters. Then I went to college, and then it was those two and my brother. And then you know they went off and lived their lives. And now it's been just him for a while. So my parents have had <laughs> these sort of like three yeah. seasons of child rearing. That's interesting. I bet they're tired. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you went to college. What did you decide, like in high school, what you wanted to be and do, or was that during college or after college? What was your What was your trajectory for your life? I think I just always wanted to be cool, and that <laughs> wasn't working in middle school or high school. And so I went to college. I was like, I'm gonna reinvent myself, and yeah. I and I did, and I was cool for a while. Um, I uh, I didn't have any aspirations of studying a certain thing. Going to college was the arrival point. Mm. Um, my parents hadn't um, been college educated at that time. They later got their degrees. Um, but um, yeah, and I was probably the first, one of the first among my cousins and uncles extended family to get a college education. So that was a pretty big deal for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so just getting there was like, okay, I'm here. Now I can be, you know figure out what I want to be. And um, so I ended up, uh, I didn't grow up in a religious household, but I ended up deciding to study religion because I had always just been fascinated, I guess, in the thought of something more. And like most uh, uh, red-blooded Americans, I think I would have said I believed in God. Mm. Um, But I just was very interested in religion. So I started studying religion in college and then I did pretty well in Spanish. And so I thought, well, it'd be cool to like, study abroad. I'd never been out of the country other than going to Niagara Falls on the Canadian side. (laughs) And so I wanted to go to Spain and my advisor told me that if I go to Spain, I could get another major. And so I was like, all right, well, there we go. I want to go to Spain. So I'm going to have a double major in Spanish and religion. Mm. And that was all the thought that went into my college studies. How long were you in Spain? Uh, For a semester, my junior year. Did you love it or? I loved it. Yeah. I changed um, so many directions in my life, trajectories. It was the first time I'd ever seen homeless people. Really? Well, because I grew up in um, the suburbs and then lived in a rural community of 1,100 people, you know, so we didn't have homeless people. Mm-hmm. It was just farmers and people that lived in town. It's interesting that that's what you remember and that's the first thing you say. How did that impact you? Well, it was a pretty... Well, first of all, they were everywhere. Vagabundos is what my... Um, Vagabonds. Sen- mm-hmm. Senora called them. And um, they were everywhere, and a lot of them were, um, you know, uh, Europeans or um, like North Africans that were, you know, because Spain is is right mm-hmm. at sort of that threshold between uh, Europe and Africa, and they were traveling through. And um, one night, um, I, I went with a. At this point, I was a Christian. I had become a Christian after the end of my freshman year of college. Had a pretty uh, big. Uh, experience with um, God, the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was uh, it was a mystical experience, I guess. And and so I was like, all right, now I'm changed. And so I went with this Christian study abroad program, and I didn't go to a Christian school. And so like we were literally leaving a Bible study, and this guy asked us asked us for some money, and um, 
uh, we, we kept walking and, and then, um, he, uh, you know, I can't, oh, somebody said, are you here every, uh, every, every night? And, and he was like, he's like, yeah. And, and so one of my friends was like, well, I'll, I'll come back tomorrow night and bring you some money. And he goes, he goes, he goes, well, I could be here. I could be there. I could be dead tomorrow. And then we just kept walking and, and we walked farther and farther away, but his voice in my head got louder and louder. And, and we started crossing this bridge to go across the river. And all of a sudden I just, I just, I just felt this sense that I needed to turn around and I handed my backpack to my friend. I said, I'll be right back. And I ran back to him and found him in the alley smoking a cigarette. And I said, are you hungry? And he looked at me like, what do you think? And so I took him over to the local McDonald's on the corner. And I said, what do you want? And he's like, I want a cheeseburger, some fries, and a beer. And you can order a beer at McDonald's in, in uh, Spain. And I looked at him. I was like, really? And he's like, I'm sorry, but that's just what I really want. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I got him a Big Mac, some fries, and a beer. And I sat with him and I was talking with him and he said, um, he said, you are the only one. I mm. said, only one what? He goes, to stop. He goes, I've been standing on that corner for weeks and you're the only person who's stopped to mm. do anything for me. And I was just, uh, it just hit me, you know, like how many times do you walk past somebody on the side of the road, you, you know, somebody uh, on the uh, on the street or you drive past somebody broken down on the side of the road and you tell yourself, well, somebody will take care of them, mm -hmm. right? And I, and I realized in this case, I was the one, you know? Sometimes you're the one. And uh, that just really shook me. And so for the rest, that was right at the beginning. And so the, for the rest of those four and a half months in Spain, I had my senor pack me two sandwiches for lunch uh, every day. And I would just always have a sandwich ready for some homeless person that I would come across and I would feed them. And that was a big deal. And, and that continued, Um I ended up pursuing mission work. I, I met some missionaries living in Spain, and I was like, oh, you can do that. I like speaking Spanish and traveling, and you can uh, do ministry and, and, and make that a way of life. I want to do that. So when I left Spain, I had a heart for uh, the poor and um, wanted to be a missionary. And so did you follow that after college? I did. Um, my senior year, I um, saw a presentation about the 1040 window, and I felt guilty about wanting to go to uh, a Spanish-speaking country where, you know, these had been evangelized, and um, started looking at studying English in China, and almost did that. I was getting ready to, uh, my end of my senior year, I was getting ready to, like, finalize the plans to go mm. teach English in China, and this opportunity to play music came along. There was this uh, music ministry, this band that was playing uh, at not at my college, but at a, another local college. And my friends and I went to see them. And at the end of the performance, they're like, hey, if you're a musician, come see us afterwards. And they're basically holding us auditions for next year's group where you would travel around the world playing music uh, and, and you get, got to call it ministry. And so I was like, great, I get to do something that I've always wanted to do. Something that I at the time thought was selfish and I was like, mu music was about me and my paradigm was I couldn't do something that I love. I had to do something right. that God wanted me to do. And it was like this thing that I had put down that God was now giving back to me. And um, and so I was like, okay, great. And and that's what I ended up doing the year uh, after I, I graduated college was music missions, basically. Mm. So you traveled around, you did that. <coughs> and then um, 
Now, you weren't married at the time, right? Right, or... yeah. I had just gotten a girlfriend, mm-hmm. and we wrote letters that year, old-style <laughs> uh, uh, courtship, and uh, traveled all around North America playing music for churches, schools, and prisons. We played probably five to ten shows a week, mm. uh, which is a lot, and we spent a month doing uh, a tour in Taiwan, and wow. we, we were huge in Taiwan, <laughs> <laughs> which is the only place we were huge. They didn't. They didn't know that we were some no-name American Christian band. They thought we were cool. That's that's awesome. Yeah. So so then when that came to an end, you said after about a year. Or? It's a. It was like a year-long commitment. Got it. Uh, it was something that we raised funds for, and our friends and family supported us. And and uh, yeah, the end of two thousand six, I was still dating this girl. She wanted to move to Nashville. We were both in from Illinois, and. Um, and so I came down to Nashville and slept on a friend's couch and <laughs> got a job working in a call center, and she ended up here working for a record label and just stayed here. Rest is history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, from 2006 to today, um, obviously you began writing. You've always wanted to write. Yeah. And, I mean, was that leading up to it even while you were overseas doing your music? Were you always writing, or did just one day you had an epiphany? Um. I have a friend who talks about this. He says, there are no epiphanies. There's just more and more clarity. Mm. And I believe that clarity comes with action. Absolutely. And so um, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert says that writing is my home, not in the sense that it's the thing uh, that I've always done or the place that I've come from, but it's the place that I always return to. Mm. And that's what writing was for me. It was always this thing that I did on the side that helped me make sense of things that I never quite took seriously. It's like one of those 80s romantic comedies where like the boy or the girl next door is the one that you really love, but you're too busy focused on the cheerleader or the football player. And then at the end of the movie, you're like, you were here all along. I love you. And that's what writing was for me. It was this thing that I always did. In sixth grade, uh, I won the school spelling bee and I beat an eighth grader. The winning word was acquiescence. <laughs> and I thought that was normal. I thought it was normal that, you know, your mom would read you the dictionary on 12-hour, you know, road trips down <laughs> to Louisiana. Uh, so when I realized, like, I was just always good with words, um, that was something that I took for granted. I was always good at English. I always liked writing. Uh, but there were a number of things that didn't make sense until I looked backwards and connected all the dots. And, um, you know, what is that? Um, is it Nietzsche that says... Um, uh, you know, we, we make sense of life, you know, looking backwards, but you can only live life forward. And um, so I was living forward, but you know, as I began to look backward, I was like, oh, that's what all this meant. You know, winning the school spelling bee and my mom, reading me the dictionary, and then senior year of high school, turning in this uh, essay that I did the night before, even though it was like 30% of our final grade, and not even reading the book and writing a book report that my teacher said, you know, a plus, mm-hmm. you, and in red letters said you should really consider being a writer or a journalist. Mm-hmm. And when I looked back on all this stuff years later, I was right. like, oh, like this is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I've always done and always wanted to do, but never let myself right. do. So, I mean, that all culminated when I was like 27. You know, I, I went and worked for a, another mission organization. I became the marketing director there. I learned about marketing. I realized marketing was just helping ideas spread. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Well, I have ideas. You know, what if I did that for me? And so I started a number of blogs. The first blog I started was that year on the road with the band. 
And I was living what I thought was my dream, which was playing professional music, playing, you know, a couple of shows a day sometimes. Mm. Uh, sometimes playing for, you know, audiences of 1,000, 2,000 people. And that was really fun and exciting. Uh, and it, it just was a job, you know. And I was sort of underwhelmed by the whole experience. <laughs> uh, partly because, like, being a professional musician is like one hour of playing music a day and 12 hours lugging crap around and driving from point A to point B. I have a little bit of a B. background in the music world, too. Yeah. So, yeah, it, the, the whole uh, it's not glorious. lugging equipment and loading it into a van and traveling and then yeah. performing for an hour and then right. the rest of the time just being a moving van. Yeah, and even if you're like you too. It's still that you just don't you just have people lug it for you, right? You know, and I I heard this story about Bono coming off a tour, and it takes like a two it like takes two weeks for him to transition back into domestic life because he goes from thinking he's the man <laughs> to being dad, <laughs> and his wife won't let him come back because she's ready to divorce him, and so he has to check into a hotel, and then they start having dinner every night, and then eventually he moves back into the house because he's got to come off of that. It's not real. And wow. there's nothing like, I mean, I, I haven't experienced that like that, but, you know, I've played in front of 2,500 fans, people who are really into what you're doing, and then you go to a hotel room or sleep on somebody's couch. We slept in a lot of host homes, right. and it's, it, it, it's even more lonely because you right. go from everybody loves me, kind of, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> to who am I? Right. And I just didn't like it. And I remember sitting around with a group of friends um, that were in the band, and the bass player said, if I didn't play music, I don't know what I'd do. Mm. And I literally thought, I would just do something else. And my favorite part of that year was writing a weekly blog post to share with our friends and family. And people loved it. They were like, because there were two groups that were part of this organization. And the other group would just go, you know, we went to Niagara Falls. We saw Mount Rushmore. Mm. And I would, like, turn them into these stories, <laughs> you know, beautiful piece, pieces of prose. Uh and people would say, oh, we, when are you going to write a book? You know, we would love to, to hear about this year in the form of a book. And so it's just something that was, um, what in the words of Derek Sivers, what's obvious to you is amazing to others. Mm. Writing was always kind of easy and obvious to me because I'd always done it, but never really taken it seriously. And so now that I'm working for a nonprofit, after the band, work, you know, working and, as a marketing, marketing director. you have to do a lot of copywriting. Yeah, so I'd written a lot. I was I was writing other people's stories, sharing other people's ideas, and I thought, what if I did this for me? And since 2006, when I started that first blog with the band, I had tried a bunch of different blogs that had failed. Mm. And and I failed at what? Like, to grow an audience, I guess. I didn't know what I was trying to do, but I'd take a shower, have an idea. I'm like, that's a business. I'm going to start this, or that's yeah. a... That's an organization or a ministry or a big idea that's going to be a movement, a campaign. And, and they would always fizzle out. And I started nine different blogs that all failed in about nine years. And I realized the one thing that all these blogs had in common was I quit them. Mm. And maybe that's why they were failing. And, um, and so I just, I started to get this itch again. And it would come back every once in a while, the desire to write. And I'd write an article for a magazine and it would get, it would get published and I'd get a little money for it or something. And then... I'd go back to work and sort of forget about it or kind of stuff that down because right. it was an unrealistic thing. And um, one year, all this stuff happened back to back to back. And um, and I, I thought God was telling me, it's time for you to do this. And the first thing that happened was um, I went to a, um, a conference about chasing your dream and somebody on stage said, what's your dream? You know, raise your hand if you know what your dream is. And a bunch of people raised their hand. And he said, okay, now raise your hand if you don't know what your dream is. 
And about half the hands in the room went up, and I was surprised, and my hand went up. And this was a conference on how to turn your dream into a business. And I was there, and I didn't even know what my dream was. He said, great, now put your hands down. All of you are lying. <laughs> he said, you do know what your dream is, you're just afraid to admit it. Mm. And I want you to write down the first word that comes to mind. And so I wrote down writer. And it was like an epiphany to me, right? And so I took it home to my wife who was sleeping, and I woke her up and I said, look at this, look at this. This says writer. Can you believe it? I'm supposed to be a writer. And she said, are you kidding me? She goes, I've been telling you that for five years, and you got to go pay $250 to go to some conference or somebody telling you that? And so that was kind of like the second thing. The first thing was, you know, you, you do know what you're just afraid. And, and Isn't, wasn't that the title of your first book? Yeah. Like you are a writer? Or yeah, what? yeah, yeah. And and then her saying, I knew this all along, and I realized there are some truths about ourselves that we are the last ones to learn. Mm. You know, some things that other people just see in us that we're afraid to admit about ourselves. And we know it, but we haven't admitted it yet. Um, and so then a few months later, I had joined this um, mastermind that my boss had actually paid for me to join. Mm. And we, I, I worked for a mission organization. We sent missionaries all over the world, short-term and mid-term missions. And it was like a group of youth ministers, and I was like infiltrating the group to get intel on how we could sell more mission trips to youth pastors. And, and it was all like, hey, this like I'm doing this for personal development, but also because we want to you know, kind of use you guys as a focus group, and everybody was cool with that. But, I, but my boss paid for me to join this coaching group, which was like one part personal development, one part professional development. And the second meeting, one of the other participants in the group asked me a question, and he said, what's your dream? And I just had this epiphany, and I said, I don't know. You know, I'd stuffed it back down. After you had been through that whole thing with your wife and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this is how I do things. <laughs> I fight things until I can't anymore. And um, he said, really? I would have thought your dream was to be a writer. I said, what? What? How do you, how do you know that? You don't even know me. He's <laughs> like, well, you write a lot. You talk about writing a lot. You read books about writing a lot. Just seems like it's what you want to do. And I was like, well, yeah. I said, I guess I'd like to be a writer someday. Mm. I said, but that'll probably never happen. And he'd been through a lot of therapy, and so he knew how to say things that sounded like <laughs> questions but weren't questions. Uh, and he said, well, he said, Jeff, you are a writer. You just need to write, right? <laughs> I was like, oh, God, here we go. And for whatever reason, um, that was the thing. That was the, sort of the final um, turning point for me where I realized, okay, God, life, there's somebody telling me something here, and I need to pay attention and so the next day I started a new blog that I had had this website that sort of like featured my writing so that people could hire me. Like it was something that I wanted to do, but I just wasn't all in. And I said, okay, I'm going to write every day on this blog for the next two years without mm. quitting because I'd never done that before. And the thing that all these failed blogs had in common was I'd quit them. So what if I just didn't do that for two years and tried to get 250 readers in the next two years? If I did that, I would keep going. And so that's what I did. And I learned a lot and uh, got better faster than I ever thought I could be. And within six months, I had 1,000 readers. And within 12 months, I had over 10,000 readers. And within like 18 months, it was like 100,000. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then was did your first book come out of the, the blog writing yeah. process? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, I wrote two books in one year, 2012. Um, and at the end of 2011... Things were really starting to take off with the blog. A publisher contacted me, and I did a small uh, book contract. 
uh, with a publisher in Chicago and uh, started writing that book, but I needed money. And then uh, my wife and I had decided to start a family, but she had gotten pregnant about six months before we thought she was going to get pregnant, i.e. the first day that we decided we were going to start a family. (laughs) And we're like, oh, this is okay. All right. And so it sort of moved up our timeline a little bit. And she and I were both working and we were living off of our combined income and really couldn't afford for one of us to not work. And so I got a lot of motivation to go, well, I've got this blog with this audience and people tell me I can like monetize this and make money off of it. So I'm going to figure out how to do that. And I ended up publishing another book pretty quickly based on um, that conversation that I had with a friend. You're a writer. You just need to write. And I had turned it into a speech that I'd done at a blogging conference and gone over really well. And so I was talking to a friend who had done a lot of self-publishing. And she was like, you need to write a book and call it You Are a Writer. Because when you did that talk, it resonated with everybody. And I was like, okay. So I wrote a book called You Are a Writer. So start acting like one. And it did pretty well sold about 10,000 copies in the first few months, and I turned it into an online course. It replaced my income. It replaced my wife's income, and then it allowed us to triple our household income in about six months, and that changed everything. Mm. And so from there, you continued to write. You wrote more books, became a best-selling author. You became to, to, to get this notoriety and platform. What, what happened next? Like, what was the next phase? Now you're a writer. You're making a good living. You've achieved your dreams, right? <laughs> right. Next, I decided to make everything harder on myself. Okay. <laughs> right? uh, had a kid, uh, had a great income, uh, didn't enjoy any of it because mm. my whole life was about feeling like I wasn't enough and needing something more to complete me. You know, looking back, I understand this. So when somebody said, something's missing in your life and it's Jesus, I was like, sign me up. I know that. I know something's missing. I thought it was a girlfriend. You know, I tried that. That didn't work. So I'll try Jesus. And, and, and that, that, was, did, that didn't work. <laughs> uh, I mean, it worked for a while. Everything works for a while. Every drug satisfies initially. And then you need more of it. And so with the Christian stuff, it was, I just need to be better. Right? And that's sort of an endless cycle because you could always find something that you're doing wrong. And I have been especially good at that my whole life. But being a missionary was part of that. I was like, this is the best version of Christian that I know. Right? Don't make much money. Uh, help a lot of people. In another country. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and, and and do like the thing that we would say is the best version. Like what is what is the saying? Like there are goers, senders, and the disobedient. <laughs> <laughs> so like mission is the thing. Great commission is right. the thing. And right. I was like, I'm not one of those like senders. You know, I'm not one of the peasants. I'm like you know, royalty. I'm, I'm on the, right. uh, uh, the, the front line. I'm going to sit on the right side. Yes. <laughs> right, so... Um, so when I started a business, I mean, when I started writing, I was like, well, I've got to scale this now. I've got to, I've got to do more of this because I was in uh, a world of internet marketers, bloggers turned authors and thought leaders, and all these people uh, were my friends and mentors, and they were growing these large businesses. They were hiring people. They were trying to get more customers and more readers and larger audiences, and so I just thought, well, that looks pretty good. I guess I should do that too because uh, this certainly can't be enough. Right, I've got to create some something missing in myself, so I have something to strive for. Was mm. how I thought about those things. So the next few years, I just kept doubling my income every year and increasing my overhead and staff and expenses and stress level. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, we ended up having another child, a girl. So I have a son and a daughter now, and um, 
And I just kept adding more things to my plates. And Had you started Tribe Writers and the Tribe Conference by this time? Yeah, so Tribe Writers started at the end of 2012. I wrote, you are a writer, and then people were like, well, how do I do this? And so I basically created an online course to teach people how to do what I talked about in the book. The book is more inspirational, and the course was an informational course on how to become a full-time writer. And then I started creating other online courses for blogging and I started writing other books. I wrote a memoir. I wrote a career book. I wrote a book on how to make a living as an artist. And um, by 2016, I had you know been consistently making over a million dollars a year. Uh, I had basically done all of my 10-plus-year goals times 10 in two to three years. And I was underwhelmed by the whole thing. And what year was this? 2016. Okay. Yeah, it was it was underwhelming, and I remember t- confessing this to a bunch of friends and mentors. I, I said this to the pastor who married us, and I said, "What do I do with that?" And he said, I, "I think it's great that you're not overwhelmed by your own success, but he says I don't know that being underwhelmed is necessarily what I would feel if I were you." He said, "I think I'd feel grateful," mm. and, and I didn't feel grateful. You know, <laughs> that made me feel guilty, and uh, I just kept looking for something else. So I hired a business coach and. He kept asking me what I wanted, and I told him I, I didn't want to run a business. He's like, so don't. I was like, no, 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 no. Like, tell me how to make the business so big that some that I get somebody else to run it, and I just get paid for it. And he's like, all right, well, here's what you have to do. you got to spend two years working harder than you've ever worked before. You've got to create systems. you got got to add an extra $600,000 in salaries to get this position, this position, that system, create this program. And then after the end of two years, you can bring in a CEO, run the company, and you can just be the founder. He said, or not, or you could just go back to having fun like you were doing in year mm-hmm. one or two. And that was very hard for me to go, I can't go back, I gotta go forward. I gotta level up, man, I gotta scale. <laughs> and Gotta grind, and, man. <laughs> yeah, and this was like six months into the coaching process. I paid him $30,000 to basically ask me every week, what do you want? And I didn't have a good answer because mm-hmm. what I wanted was based on what other people were doing. Right. He says, I don't, I don't know if this is gonna make you happy. And, and at one point, I got really mad with him, and I said, stop changing your advice. You keep changing what you're telling me to do. He tells me to hire a bunch of people, and then the next week, he's like, you should fire everybody. You should fire me. And I was like, dude, you got to stop changing your advice. It's not helpful. He goes, no, I won't do that. And I said, why not? He said, because when you hired me, I promised you that I would help you get to where you want to go. I'll give you whatever information, whatever advice I can to help you get to where you want to go. I keep changing my advice because you keep changing what you want. Mm. He said, so I'm not going to talk to you until you decide what you want and you can commit to it. He says, I'll give you 48 hours and then you can call me back. And I talked to a, bunch of, I talked to a friend about this. And I was like, what do I do? And he said, well, who's somebody you respect that you could look up to, uh, you look up to and you could say, hey, how, do you, how did you do this? And if they told you, you would do it. I said, well, Seth Godin. I, I look up to him, the way he does things. He's a marketer, but he's also an artist. He's not... He's not poor, which, you know, I would appreciate not being if I could help Mm -hmm. it. He's not a starving artist, but, like, he clearly has standards that he does not deviate from. And he's not like all these greedy internet marketers that I had started to become like. Right. And uh, so I emailed him, and he told me to call him. And he asked me why I started a business. I explained to him what I was doing. And he said, "Um, why did you do it? Why did you start the business? I said, I wanted freedom. He said, that's a terrible reason to start a business. I said, okay, well, here I am. He said, don't start a business because you want freedom. Start a business because you want to run a business because that's what you end up doing. So 
why not build the kind of business that you want to run? And he basically created these two scenarios. He's like, here's how you scale. Here's how you just make this fun, and it won't last forever, but you can make a good living until that goes away, and you can find something else to do. Um, and in the meantime, you're working on your craft, and you're focused on becoming a great writer, if that's what you want. I said, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to do it. He goes, no, no, I just told you you could do this or this. I didn't tell you what to do. Just, you know, try to pick one. And I said, okay, all right, thanks. And the next day, I was making pancakes for my kids. And this was one of those rare days where I didn't have to leave the house by 7.30 in the morning and be off to a meeting or something. That I, like, I was planning these meetings. I was scheduling these things that I was dreading going to. But that's mm. what I thought I had to do as the CEO, you know? And I'm making pancakes for my kids, who at the time were like six months and like four and a half years old. And I'm just looking at them going, I have to spend the next two years of my life and their lives working harder than I've ever worked before so that then I don't have to work that much. I don't want to do that. Like that's not interesting to me and I don't want to run a business. I just want to do my work, make a good living. And, and I knew enough about marketing and business at that time to be pretty confident that I could find the intersection between what I wanted to do and what other people wanted from me. And so I called my business coach, Casey, and I said, I don't want to run a business. He goes, I know, but I'm glad that you know that now. Mm. And it started this two-year process of me kind of dismantling the business to get back to me doing what I wanted to do, which I thought would make me happy and did for a while until it didn't. And that dismantling of your business, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it was a metaphor for something much deeper that was going on in your life because... We can, our lives intersected on the front porch of Ian Cron's house in yeah. Franklin. Ian Cron, the author of uh, Road Back to You and Enneagram Fame and, you know, all the other books that he's written. Um, and, and little did we know until recently talking, we were going through a similar journey that I've shared with several of my interviewees uh, on this podcast. Talk to me a little bit about that. It was around that time, I think, that you were going through some of this. So... I just thought if I could do the right thing, I would be okay. And I thought the right thing was having a big business, and that overwhelmed me. And I felt I realized I wasn't that good of a leader, wasn't that great of a, an executive. So, you know, and I never had a lot of people working for me, maybe 20 people total with full-time staff and contractors and stuff. Uh, so I just kind of started scaling back and focusing on, I'm going to do this this way and not chase more or the next thing. Uh, and it worked um, for about two years. I felt pretty good, and then I started to get that itch again, you know? And I just happened to kind of bump into Ian and we have this relationship where like every six to 12 months we'll <laughs> bump into each other and it's just like the right timing for some something that's going on with me or with him. And so um, we ended up hanging out one night on the porch before you were there and I confessed to him that um, nothing I have ever done has felt like success. And I can somewhat objectively look at best-selling books, millions of dollars made, and go, hey, like, there was a point where you thought this was it. This was many multiples beyond what you thought would be a reasonable goal to set for yourself. And you've, you've gone beyond that. And it just wasn't satisfying. And I told him, I said, so what do I need to do? Do I need to start a new business? Do I need to do, like, do I just need to be the writer guy? Like, what do I need to do? He goes, I don't think it's any of that. I don't think it has anything to do with that. And I said, I just don't feel like everything I, I have done, I know other people would say is successful, but it kind of feels like failure to me. I said, that's weird, right? Like I was aware of the words coming out of my mouth and I was like judging them. He goes, that's something. 
And I went down a bunch of different paths. This was last year, 2018. Uh, st- started studying trauma, kind of dug into some of my past. There's some stuff there. Um, but it did kind of start this journey that other people have you know, referred to as an awakening. I thought of it as I'm losing my mind. Yeah. Uh, where everything that used to work no longer worked and uh, all the things. So success, money, fame, significance through generosity, right? You know, giving money away, giving my time away, helping homeless people, being a missionary, all these things that at one point brought me some sense of um, importance and significance didn't anymore. And I was like, I, I just realized that these were all coats that I had put on. And you asked at the beginning of the episode, uh, who is Jeff Goins? And I realized, oh, this is a character that I created. Mm. This brand, this persona, it's its something that I made so that people could love me because mm. I'd never really, really felt that. And, um, and so I just started taking off the coats, you know, the success coat, the money coat. What if I stopped doing this? And I would stop doing it. What if I let go of the attachment I have to this? And then I started going deeper. You know, there was the God coat and the, you know, the coat of being a good Christian. I was like, what does that even mean? I would go to church and I would hear people say stuff and I would go, I don't know what that means anymore. That, I know, I understand the connotation of that word, but that word, whatever it is, God, salvation, forgiveness, what does that mean? It didn't have any sense of personal connection with me anymore. I didn't, and, and I was like, well, I just got to try harder, you know, and I would do that for a little while and it, it just felt more and more empty. And I would ask friends, like, why are you doing this? And they would tell me their reasons and I would go, I'm not doing it for that. Why do you go to church? Oh, I, I feel connected to God. I was like, I don't feel that. I feel connected to other people. I was like, I, I feel lonely. Mm. And, or it's like, you know, I learn. I was like, I don't learn anything. I mean, not to sound arrogant, but like I had studied a lot of this stuff. I'd gotten really deep in it. And I was like, I feel like it's the same thing with different words. Right. I'm not, le- I'm hearing, and there's something good to that, you know, hearing a familiar truth through a new lens, but it was just not interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so last year was this process of letting go of all these things that I thought defined me. And every time I let go of one of them, I thought, I'm going to die or go to hell or be a bad person <laughs> or end up, you know, or lose your mind. <laughs> yeah. On the side of the road as a, you know, drug addict. Like, I, I mean, these are things that I've held on to so tightly that I thought made me a good person and somebody worthy of love to let go of them. I, I was very scared to do, but I didn't know what else to do because I couldn't hold them anymore. And so in this process and in this journey where you do feel like, well, am I losing my mind? Am I losing my sanity? Am I going to end up a bad person? What did you find? What are you finding? Because I believe it's a continued journey for the rest of our lives, hopefully. Um, what are you finding every time you let go of some, one of those things? I think you have to let go of who you think you are to become who you really are. That's good. And so anytime you take an idea about a person and think, I am this idea, that's an attachment. It's, it's something other than the true self, and it's at least examining. And that's what I was doing. I was going, am I my success? What if I am no longer successful and I'm just me? That's what we say, right? You're, I'm just me, right? Just. And every time I would shed one of those illusions, you know, false identities, I was still me and I was actually a little bit happier. Mm. Um, and, and I thought I was losing my mind, except that every time I let go of something, 
I would bump into somebody who would encourage me mm. totally serendipitously. And I had people who were discouraging me and telling me that I was going crazy and that I was going to hell or whatever. Um, you did have people telling you that? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and But I, I was like pulling out of a lot of those communities, right. you know, uh, just because... And I didn't even know why. I was just like, this doesn't feel right anymore. And I didn't have a reason. Right. There was not some theological dilemma where I was like, if we just loved gay people, I would be okay. You know, like, I, it wasn't anything conscious like that. I was just like, this... I'm, I, this just doesn't make sense to me anymore. And, and, and yet I feel like there's something more, but what is that? Mm. Um, and, and so every time I'd let go of that, um, and I go, I I'd get a little bit anxious and I go, maybe I need to, maybe I need to not do this. I would, I would run into an old friend that I hadn't seen in 10 years. Mm. Right. And, and they would say something to me that I would go, Oh wow. I, I ended up hiring a spiritual director uh, at the encouragement of a friend of mine who you know, said, you're not going crazy, it's okay. And I hired this um, 60-year-old uh, woman who worked at a Methodist church and was trained by like Franciscan monk, uh, Franciscan nuns. And, um, and she said to me, I said, am I going crazy? Is this bad? And she said, she goes, if you are earnestly seeking truth and being led by love, I think what you'll find... I think God will be there. Like, you'll find God, whatever that means, whatever that looks like to you. I was like, all right, okay. And then a few nights later, a friend from Atlanta who doesn't even live in town, whom I hadn't seen in a couple of years, um, was in town for a conference and ended up on my back porch hanging out drinking wine. And I said, am I going too far? You know, is this, am I going off the deep end, you know? And he said, no, man. I, he says, I think you got to keep going. He said, I don't think you've gone far enough. Mm. He said, if you are being led by love and earnestly seeking truth, you'll be okay. Like the exact thing, same thing that, that she had said just a few days before. It was like little things like that over and over and over again. Even a after I let go of community, I found this sort of hodgepodge of encouragers mm -hmm. who, who in very seemingly serendipitous ways kind of came alongside me to go, hey, this is okay. I mean, I was letting go of the very idea of God, period. Going, I don't, I mean, that's just a word, right? you know? And, and maybe there's nothing here. And I, I really had to put every idea, ideal, belief, thought, thing that I thought was true on the table and go, this could all not be real. Mm -hmm. We could be living in a simulation. Mm -hmm. I, I, I very much believe that I am not actually processing reality as it exists, but as my computer brain efficiently wants to create a, an hallucination for me. And, and, but, but there's a freedom in going, this could all be uh, a lie. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I was able to sort of take the things off the table that, I, that didn't work for me anymore or didn't seem true, but I was also able to pick up some of them and go, I think this this might still be true. Yeah, I'll keep this one. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and for me it was like it was a different way of understanding something that I understand at a surface level a little bit uh, deeper. And Ian talks about thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Mm -hmm. I believe this. I don't believe this, and I believe this again, but in a new and different, <laughs> maybe sometimes heretical way. Like you know, it's it's not what. I have been taught that this is the way to believe it, but I think that's true, but maybe not in the, the way that other people would say it's true. Mm. Uh, Father Richard Rohr says it another way. It's kind of the same thing. He talks about order, disorder, and reorder. Yeah. 
which is, you know, you live your life in a way that's very structured and orderly and you build it on certainty, mm-hmm. but then you reach a point like we have mm-hmm. or many people have that you, you come to disorder and you put it all on the table and you say, I, I, I've got to rearrange, tear down, yeah. and keep. And eventually you get to reorder mm-hmm. where you do have, you, and you can't live forever in either one of those things because uh, reorder is really the, is the goal. Yeah, and, and I think... You do that many uh, times throughout your life. As you said, I think it's a cyclical process, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, you know, the, the, the cool word is deconstruction. And I have lots of friends who are sort of going through this process of being raised in the church or a belief system and going, I don't know if I believe this the way my parents told me I should believe this. And a lot of them, I find, are sort of looking for a new construct. Right. Right? So now I'm the atheist. And these right. are the rules that I live by. Mm-hmm. Or... I'm, uh, you know, a Buddhist or whatever. And my experience of that process is to deconstruct a belief system in, in some ways is supposed to help you understand that constructs are not reality. The point is not to get another construct. You can use a construct, like you can use a lens to see things differently. Um, you know, but when I put my sunglasses on outside, it actually allows me to see things more easily um, when it's sunny versus not having my sunglasses because it's too bright for me to see. But I need to understand that the glasses are shading the reality. And and what I'm seeing is not, ex- like, things aren't yellow because I've got blue blockers. You know, things right. aren't right. don't look that way. Uh, I'm seeing some distortion of the reality. And that's what a construct is. It is a way to connect with that which is, with um, ultimate reality. Um but it is just a way, and and so long as you can understand that the construct is the means, the reality, and not the new reality, I think you're free. And if and if you don't do that, you're always kind of trying on a new thing, saying this is the thing, and then it ultimately dis- disappoints you, and you become disillusioned, um, and that's not a fun way to live. And for me, it, it was the process of going, oh yeah, yeah, that could be true, uh, but not in the way that I thought it was true. And I get yeah. to play with all these different ideas and constructs and use them as lenses to look at the world and look at myself and look at life and see what I can learn as a result of it. I think the freedom of of going through that, uh, while it can be very, very difficult, what I have found, and tell me if you went through this too, is there is a almost like the stages of grief and yeah. mourning yeah. because that construct can be very, very near and dear and such a big part of your identity and your family and your loved ones and, like you said, your community, that letting that go is almost like a death. It absolutely is, yeah. Um, You're grieving the thing that you thought you were. Mm. And as I said before, you really do have to let go what you think you are to become who you really are. And my process, because it was, you know, you talked about the business stuff, it was... A metaphor, but it was also just a part of the process. And I realized uh, the first part was like comparison. I was doing what I was doing based on what other people were doing. And I was very much addicted to other people's approval. Mm -hmm. I remember emailing a a fellow best-selling author who was somebody I looked up to, a hero of mine. I said, what should my next book be on? And he replied back. And I was so used to other people telling me who I should be and just doing it, right? Because I thought that was the humble thing to do. And it was a way to endear myself to heroes and mentors. And he replied back and he goes, no idea. <laughs> How would I know? Wow. And it was sobering for me. And I realized, oh, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm asking other people to tell me who I am. And nobody can do that. Mm-hmm. And so I let go of comparison and the need for other people's approval. And I realized I'm not uh, what other people think I am. Mm-hmm. 
And then my work became my focus, right? And so I'm, I'm really focused on being an artist and being creative and I'll get my worth out of doing original and interesting work. And that worked for a while. And then I was like, yeah, but I don't know. Am I really this? Am I really what I do? What if I let go of that? And so I let go of the significance that I was placing on that. It, it, let go sounds like an active thing. It was more like you just look at it, you see it for what it is, and you go, oh, that's not real. Mm. Oh, other people think I'm successful, but I don't think I'm successful. So how does that? So other people's opinion of me doesn't really, it's not reality. Mm. It's, not, it's not affecting me. Or other people think I'm stupid or smart or funny or this. And I'm no, I'm not that. I know there's more to me than that. So I'm not what other people think I am. Oh, that's gone, you know? And then I know that I'm not just what I do because mm. uh, there's more to me than that. I, I sense that. And so that, it's not that. And so that kind of falls away. And then the last or next layer was if I'm not what I do, I'm not what other people think I am. Am I even what I think I am? And that's when I went through like understanding conditioning, understanding, you know, being socially programmed to be a certain kind of person by my parents, by society, by the church. Um, and I think all in, you know, pretty, pretty much mostly well-meaning ways, but I'm not that either. I'm someone else. And I, I heard somebody say, um, you know, well, this is the way I thought of it. I, I started to realize like life is a game. And I thought I was the monopoly piece, you know, moving around the board. And so I'd pass go and I'd feel good about it. You know, I wouldn't pass go, I'd feel bad about it. I'd feel anxious. You know, I wouldn't want to go to jail. <laughs> Wanted to collect $200. And I realized, this is a game. This is silly. This doesn't mean anything, you know? This doesn't change who I am if, if you know, I get my name in the paper or don't. Because mm. um, I had done so many things that I thought would make me significant. And inside, I felt the same. Yes. I was like, well, then why would I keep doing more things, you know, or setting bigger goals or trying to make more money? It didn't work before. So who am I? Am I the game piece or am I the hand that moves the game piece? And who and what is that? Yeah, and don't you think that uh, for so many people, especially guys, but also women as well, I mean, as humans we struggle with, but, but the sense of, like you said, accomplishment, we just keep thinking, well, if I can just get to this next level. Right. And for you and for I, me, and, and, and people at different phases who've discovered those things don't bring ultimate satisfaction. Um, it's sad to say, I see it all around me, that people, you know, depression and suicide and other things, it's just kind of like, is this all there is? Right. I'm out of here. Right, yeah. Like I, or I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I just can't do it. Yeah. Life is meaningless. I get it. I get it. And I do think life is meaningless in, in the purest sense of the word, but I also think meaning is a human construct. And so if life is meaningless, as uh, you know, Solomon said, then all there is to do is to eat, drink, and be merry, which is actually a really good thing. Mm. And what that means, and you look at the work of like Viktor Frankl, I mean, human beings are meaning-making creatures. Right. Right. So life has whatever meaning we give it. And you can live a quote-unquote meaningful life by having work to do, by having someone to love and love you back, and being able to look at all the bad, hard, painful things that have happened to you and go... Yeah, that helped me get here. And it turns out, according to, you know, somebody who survived the concentration camps, and he, he said people literally died in concentration camps because of despair, because they had no more hope, nothing to live for. And for him, and this became the basis of his logotherapy work, it was um, you've got to have work to do, something that you believe in. It doesn't have to be a job, but you've got to have a podcast, a book, 
uh, you know, a desire to raise good kids, mm. some great project. Uh, you've got to have relationship with people and you have to have a redemptive view of your own pain and suffering. Um, and so that's that was the ultimate conclusion for me was the game doesn't have any rules mm. or it has whatever rules I decide it has. Uh, at least my personal subjective experience of it, which is my reality. So what's that going to look like? What's a meaningful life going to look like? And I'm free to play. I'm free to do all these things. And because I'm free from attachment to success, I'm free to succeed mm -hmm. without needing it, without becoming anxious about holding on to it. And I'm also free to fail, which means I can try big, bold things. And if it totally plummets, I'm still me and I can still live to fight another day. And I'm free to have people acknowledge me and not. And there isn't this anxiety of like holding on to this thing that was never real in the first place. And so all of a sudden, I saw the game for what it is, which is hopefully an opportunity to have fun, mm. right? And if you know you're playing a game, uh, <laughs> depending on how obsessed you get with games, and I can get kind of obsessed, uh, you can have fun. You can enjoy it. Because when Monopoly is over and I lose and you win, I'm not dead, mm -hmm. right? I'm still me. I'm still okay. And I think that's true of the game of life, too. You can try all these different things, try on these different costumes and identities, and at the end of it, you're still you. You were the mm. one who, you were the actor. You were the one putting on the costumes. You weren't the character. You were something more than that. And I always thought it was something less. I thought just me was something less. You take off all these costumes and you're just left with some, you know, scrawny, naked person. And instead, it was a lot more than that. So is that one of the reasons, uh, talk briefly uh, about the Tribe Conference, what, oh, it, yeah. what it has been, what has evolved to, and then this year being the last year. It was a conference put together for my community of writers and creatives. Um, over the years, I've had uh, something like 20,000 customers and students go through various programs I've done, and they all it was all on online, and so they wanted some in-person thing to do. And I never wanted to get into the event planning space because I knew people had done that. It was hard and expensive. Uh, but we put together a conference that every year had a few hundred people come, and we did it here in Franklin, Tennessee. And... Um, I had always said I wanted to do it for five years. And the first few years was like everything in my life at that point. Everybody said it was great and I wanted it to be something else. I wanted it to be something better. Mm. And I realized um, at the end of maybe the fourth year last year that everything that I wanted to turn this thing into was not what people were saying made it great. Mm. In fact, the things that people said made it great were all the things I was embarrassed about that I wish I could change because they were all manifestations of my personality. People would say, oh, it's so informal and family-oriented. And I, I, thought that would I thought we were being messy, you know, because I would be a little bit off the cuff where I'd say, um, or make a joke about some, you know, mistake I had made on stage. And people loved it. But I was like, if I had more money, more time, more resources, I would fix all these things that you love because they embarrass me because they remind me of my own flawedness. And that for me was one of the first epiphanies in work that like all of my limitations are not liabilities, they're leverage, they're, some, they're an asset, they're something to be used. And so I started leaning into that over the past few years. This is what it is and it's, it's gonna be what it is, I'm gonna enjoy it. And I started enjoying my work and people were like, you're different. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I stopped trying to change this thing. I stopped trying to change my life and just started enjoying it and started enjoying my work more and realized, it was impacting people. But I would literally have conversations with people where they're thanking me for changing their life. And I'm like looking over their shoulder, you know, waiting to talk to the next person or going, ah, oh, there's only 120 people here right now. That's disappointing. Mm. 
you know? And I, was just, and I just became aware of how silly that was. And so I decided at the end of last year that this would be the last year because I'd always said it would be five years. And I, I don't know why because it, it was really good and people loved it, but I just had this sense that it was over. Yeah. And it was done. And all my friends were starting conferences, and that's a good time to do something different when yeah. everybody else is doing it. And when we did it at this event in Franklin at the factory, literally nobody in my space was doing conferences there. Now everybody's doing it. And I was like, all right, well, time to move on. You know, I'll go, yeah. I'll go do something else. And, and But people kept asking. People cried last year, and I said, this mm. is going to be the last year, next year. And, um, and so that was this year. And people were like, you know, you asked me, any regrets? Are you sad? And I just was like, it was perfect you know at yeah. end of this weekend and i heard myself say something that i didn't plan on saying from stage at the closing keynote which was an attempt to answer the question why are you doing this and um you know basically i said we've done this for five years many of you come all five years and you've graduated mm. you know it's time for you to move on and go do something else and i said we live in this world and in this culture where we think just because it's good it should continue mm. just because you can you should and I don't believe that. And my past year and a half of experience had been every time I let go of something good, I think uh, uh, that I'm afraid of losing, I get something better. And, and so I said this from stage without practicing. It just kind of came out. I was like, I'm learning from some unconscious part in, in me that's trying to communicate truth. And I said, um, quoting Henry Cloud from Necessary Endings, he says that... Um, uh, the bad has to end before the good can begin. Mm, that's good. Um, and and he says, you know, endings are neither good nor bad. They're just necessary sometimes. And I mm. love that book. And I said, I think that's true, but sometimes the good has to end before the better can mm. begin. And that's what it was about. This is good, but there's something better. I just feel it. And the more I trust that, the more I lean into that, the more good things come. But it's scary. It's a death. You are letting go of something that's pretty good that you could stay comfortable with. And I think that's true of every part of our life, not just our our work, our careers, our our relationships. It's actually every part of our life. It seems like that is the the um, the archetypal design, if you would, of all of creation. It is um, it is interesting to to let go of what I understood my faith to be and reconnect with certain. Uh, ideas from it, you know, this idea of leaving home, the hero's journey. This yes. is a journey of faith, walking not by sight, you know, but by a deeper sense of knowing, by faith. And uh, you think about like Abraham leaving, you know, to go in search of a new land. Where is it? Just go. Mm-hmm. Where do I go? Y- I'll tell you when you get there. Mm-hmm. And he left a very comfortable life. And, you know, all of the patriarchs in a way did that. They left something comfortable to get something better. But there was all kinds of hardship along the way. And I think that is the journey of life, and that is the faith journey. And that was my journey. I had to let go of my idea of God to really truly find Mm. God, something more, something bigger than an idea about a white dude with a beard in the sky that I was afraid of. Mm. And But I was so afraid to let go of my idea. And every time I let go of an abstraction of reality, I encounter more reality. For me, for me, the freedom, and tell me if this resonates, the freedom of saying there has, doesn't have to be certainty uh, in mi- many, if not most, things of our lives. And when we, we are fr- that we are able to let go of that certainty, um, it opens up a whole new world of possibilities, but also deep freedom to be able to say, 
things don't have to be absolute in these areas. And I'm not saying there's not absolutes, because there certain is. There certainly is. But there's very few in our lives that I, be- I believe that, that, that are necessary for us. I love that quote, science is not an exact science. <laughs> you know, like, science is basically a, a rule, a list of rules about how reality usually works based on our observance of it. But there's always exceptions, and there's always things that, you know, like, oh, we're pretty sure this is how it works, right? And then we realize that is not, that is not how it works. You know, we're pretty sure that the smallest thing in the universe is an atom. We're pretty sure that it's, you know, these subatomic particles. We're pretty sure that it's quarks. We don't know. Well, to give you an example, <laughs> I was listening to a scientist the other day, and he was saying this exact same thing. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, we know that at 32 degrees, water freezes, and we know that, you know, water boils at a certain... Well... If you go to a certain altitude, that changes. Right. If you right. go up to the mountains, there's di- it's different degrees based on... And then he says, if you go to the moon, it's different. And yep. if you go to Mars, he says, there's a place in Mars or the universe where they scientists call it the, the, the three-something, where water boils, it freezes, and it turns to steam all at the same temperature. <laughs> he goes, that is a scientific fact, right. and it's quantum physics. Yeah. But the point is... You think that there are rules and laws that are in that are in stone, right. but yet it depends on where you are and what glasses you're looking through. Yeah, and I'm very comfortable with that. You know, like I'm uncomfortable with. I mean, the reality is that things are uncertain. That there are more things that are uncertain than are certain. Yes, I believe uh, that's. Ha- I, I don't even call that a belief. It just seems to be true in the way that I live my life, which I guess is a belief. Um, and most of the time, our certainty is our best guess. Right. And I would say this. I would say there's more uncertainties than certainties in my life, and yet for a long time, I lived my life as if the opposite were true, that right. there are more certainties than uncertainty. Right. Mystery is what we don't know, but we know a lot of things, right? And I'm not saying that we don't know some things, but I agree that the things that we think we know are best guesses in science, religion, life. Uh, we're always discovering new things. I think that's a good thing. Yes. And I think it's okay to hold on to certain constructs. Sure. You go, this is this kind of works for me right now, mm-hmm. uh, but it could and probably will change. I started reading, um, I started rereading Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, and there's a lot of like really good resonant ideas in there that, that connect with me right now. And one of them is about the idea of consistency, which I think most people would say it's good to be a consistent person. It's good to be steady integrous, honorable, consistent. And he says, no, that's a bad idea. He said, don't be consistent. He says, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Mm. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, meaning don't just be consistent for the sake of like being consistent because growth is the opposite of consistency. It is change. Mm. And for me, that's what I'm interested in, change, growth. Seeing new frontiers, even in myself, um, that's what this is about, is growing and evolving and becoming more of you. And, and the more I grow, I don't feel like I'm becoming a new or better person like I used to feel, new layers, you know, new coats. Every time I step into the next evolution of me, it feels like somebody I've always been but have been afraid to show. Mm. Not, like being a writer was that. It was like, oh, yeah, I've always done this. Parker Palmer says, before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. And that is a, like, that's a pretty good spiritual practice for me right now, which mm. is 
who am I? What, ha- what, when I look at the story of my life, what is it telling me about who I am and how can I take the next step into becoming that, the next step into that identity? So what's next for Jeff Goins? What, what are you, you're kind of in this a transformational year, two years. What, what in a nutshell is in, in the next future? I know you got another book you're working on. I'm working on a book that's kind of about these ideas about becoming yourself, which has been a slow but good process of figuring that out and trying to communicate in a way that will hopefully connect and resonate with others. Um, I heard Adam Grant interview Malcolm Gladwell recently, and basically Adam Grant talking to you know Malcolm Gladwell has written these paradigm-shifting books for years now, read by millions of people. He says, what's your mission? What's your goal? What are you trying to accomplish? And Malcolm was like, what are you talking about? He goes, like, what's the why, you know? And he goes, I don't have one. And Adam couldn't believe he's got a goal. Come on. He goes, well, I'm trying to not get bored because I don't want to be bored. And I was just so blown away by that. I mean, here's somebody who has like changed our collective consciousness, you know, about certain ideas regarding intuition and success. And and yet here's somebody who's changed his mind on some pretty big issues that he's written about and published Mm -hmm. in books that have been read by millions of people. Like there are chapters in David and Goliath that contradict chapters in Outliers. And he, he puts it in the footnotes. Yeah, I was wrong about that. And what kind of freedom there is in that to go, I'm here to play and uh, I'm going to, you know, share my best ideas that I have right now, but I just don't want to get bored and I want to enjoy myself. So what's next for me is I want to continue to become myself. I want to keep growing and changing. The uh, thing that I'm dealing with right now is learning to trust myself Mm. and that when I do what I want, what I think is best for me, it ends up being the best for everyone around me very scary. I was taught that that's selfish and being selfish is wrong and you should basically do what everybody else wants you to do and never what you want to do because that's wrong and and evil. Uh, But the more I step into that and trust myself, worst case scenario, I just do something and learn from it. But more often than not, it ends up being a pretty good thing. Mm. And so I want to continue to share those parts of me that I'm worried people will reject or not like and see how it connects with people as an experiment. And I continue to be amazed at how how much that liberates other people, how your freedom frees other people. And, and it frees me too, it liberates me um, to go, wow, this this I just might be able to be myself in this life and everything <laughs> would be okay. So I want to do that. I want to continue to do work, but do it as a form of play, you know, something that's fun, like a child would do. And I'm happy to find ways to make money and make it work at a from a pragmatic standpoint. But I don't think I'll ever go back to thinking I'm the game piece. Yeah, yeah. What what one piece of advice would you give to people that are listening to this podcast and they're thinking, you know, so much of what you say resonates, but, you know, I feel like I'm on the treadmill. I've got bills to pay and it's easy for you to say, you know, I want to reinvent myself or do something different or do something interesting because you've got the success behind you. What would you say to the person that's that's just sitting there going, I resonate and I want to do that, but I don't know how to get from point A to point B? There's always a cost. I mean, I pretty much um, almost went broke doing this and went way into debt and drove my business into the ground and, and have been spending a year digging my way out of it. So there are costs, significant costs to this. Uh, you know, you can lose everything. You know, I I better understand when Jesus says, "No, you gotta you gotta give up your whole life for this thing." Mm. It, it's just it doesn't look the way I thought it looked. You know, giving up your whole life to me means giving up all of it, including these egoic ideas about 
I'm going to be a good Christian. You know, I'm going to be this, giving up even the idea of yourself. So um, honestly, I think the best thing that you can do is separate yourself from, you can separate your identity from your activity. And I think a pretty good piece of advice is don't believe everything that you think. Don't believe mm, everything that you feel. Good. To learn, I mean, you can call this mindfulness, meditation, you know, whatever, uh, con- contemplation. But it's just simply understanding uh, that thoughts are things that pass through your mind and you don't have to do them. You don't have to be them. You don't have to attach to them. That, to me, is freedom to go, I'm sad, but I don't have to be sad. I, I feel sad, sadness, but I don't have to become sad. Right. I don't have to dwell on it. And, um, and that, you know, my understanding of it is, is a lot of what depression is. I feel sad. I feel bad about being sad and you're dwelling on the emotion or I feel angry. I don't want to feel angry. I'm going to stuff that down. And then it ends up coming out in these weird sideways ways. Um, the best practice for me was, was that, was simply going, I, I can succeed and not be my success. I can feel sad or happy or angry and not be that thing. And if I, if I can learn to just observe it, I mean, a, a very practical exercise is to go, I have thoughts, right? I think things. Well, how do you know? What is it in you that makes you that, that makes you realize that you're thinking something? Because you're not if you're not your thoughts, then what are you? Well, you know, I have feelings. Well, are you your feelings? Well, no. Who's the I that has those feelings? You know, you go, well, no, it, it's me. I'm me. Who's I? There's still a self, a subject behind that object. And this is, you know, just a fun little philosophical thing. But if you do it, right, you find yourself going, well, now I am aware that I'm aware that I have thoughts and feelings and actions and so on. Well, what's that awareness? And you can go into an endless regression, almost as if there's like eternity written on your heart. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if there's something infinite inside of you. For me, that was very freeing. And I realized I don't have to believe everything that I think or feel that I am something else. Um, and I think there's a liberty in feeling things, doing things, thinking things without getting attached to them, that you are a consciousness, you are a self, you are a soul that is separate from all those things that you think and do and feel. Mm. And if that's true, you're free. You can do whatever you want. Mm. And I really do believe that. And so um, that's sort of rule number one. You can do whatever you want. Rule number two is there are always consequences. Mm. And I think the wisest way to go through life is to go, I can do whatever I want. I just need to be aware of the consequences and understand that if something happens to me, I am not that thing. I am something else. Mm. That's, That's awesome. How can people get a hold of you if they want to connect or read what you're doing? What What's the best way to connect? Um, I think if this resonated with you, you should send me an email. I love hearing from people about this. I'd be happy to continue the conversation with you. You can email me at jeff at goinswriter.com, jeff at goinswriter.com, G-O-I-N-S, writer.com. If you'd like to read some of my writing, listen to my podcast. It's about writing and creative work. You can go to that, that URL, goinswriter.com like coins with a G, or as they told me in middle school, groins, uh, which you won't forget now, goinswriter.com. And uh, do you have a title of your next book? No, I don't. Email me and tell me what you think the title of my next book should be. And when are you expecting that to be finished? A uh, year or two. It'll okay. be a while, yeah. Okay. But other books, they can just go to Amazon or wherever they buy books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, thank you for your time, and I just want to encourage you to keep, um, keep going on this journey, mm. and uh, thank you for your honesty. Um, I know uh, personally 
I've benefited from it. Uh, so thank you from that. And I know other people have too. And you're one of those rare people that um, at a young age can have that level of success, but be so self-aware that they're saying, I'm willing to change. I'm willing to let that go. I'm willing to um, learn more and have more self-awareness to where I can do what's best for me. Mm-hmm. And ultimately in that, that's the best gift I think you, that, that you can give other people. So thanks for that. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you soon.